Welcome to the first episode of Let's Talk When. This is a brand new podcast series which will keep you right up to date with the current issues in the world of water and environmental management. We'll talk to key figures across our industry and take a deep dive into some of the biggest challenges and topics we're all facing at the moment. We're grateful to our series sponsor, Yorkshire Water, for helping us share these conversations and bring this podcast idea to life. I'm Nikki Roach, I'm the president of SIWEM and now apparently a podcast host. Everything is connected is the theme of my presidency and I hope this series of podcasts helps us all explore the opportunities that thinking in a more connected way might create. Over the next six episodes, we'll step behind the glossy PowerPoints and hear the real stories about what people are actually doing now globally to address the big issues of climate change and adaptation, improving diversity and inclusion across our sector and reducing our demand for water. Each episode, joining me to give their opinions, expert analysis and generally keep me in check will be a guest host. And to launch our series and to explore the theme of advocacy with me, I'm delighted to be joined by Barbara, Baroness Young of Old Schoon. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you for inviting me along. I'm glad to be part of this. You are very welcome. Is it your first time on a podcast? Um, I suspect it's not when you've been around the block as long as I have, but I can't remember what the last one was I did. (laughs) Well, we'll try and make this one more memorable. Today, we're going to be exploring the topic of advocacy. And when I asked Barbara where that theme had been prevalent in her career, it was clear immediately that we've got the right co-host for this episode. Barbara spent her entire career involved in advocacy, including 20 years in the thick of NHS policy and politics and ultimately leading the professional body for NHS managers. She's led the RSPB and English Nature, was chief executive of the Environment Agency and now chairs the Woodland Trust. And Barbara, you said the biggest shock was the first time someone lobbied you as a new peer, although you actually spend more time lobbying government and others in Parliament rather than being lobbied. So I am really looking forward to hearing your views on everything we've got coming up. First, we're going to give a two minute take on a a few big news stories that are relevant to this theme of advocacy. Then our big interview this episode is with Jake Rigg, the Corporate Affairs Director at Affinity Water and Alistair Chisholm, the Director of Policy at SIWIM. I spoke to them a few days ago and I'm particularly excited to share with you what they had to say about the importance of storytelling in advocacy. If we can bring that practical experience base as well as the kind of academic evidence together with that really eye-catching, cute messaging that the NGOs do so, so well, it can be really, really powerful. You can tell what people are thinking. They're not thinking about the science of air quality in their kids' lungs. They're thinking... I'm not going to get to enjoy that opportunity with my own kids. And that's how you connect emotionally with people. And that's what that air quality campaigning has been doing a really impressive job of. Finally, we'll hear Barbara's reflections on that interview and her advice on delivering more effective advocacy across the water and environment sector. Right, let's take a look at a couple of the biggest stories around at the moment, certainly in the UK. Um, And Barbara, I've been really interested in seeing both the UK Prime Minister's announcement about his 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution And then it's likely that the UK government ahead of COP26 next year in Glasgow are going to announce a carbon reduction target of about 68 percent by 2030. Um, I guess I'm interested, particularly in your unique role as a a peer. What are your reflections on the kind of UK government's approach to carbon reduction emissions? And where's the advocacy angle in all of this from your perspective? I think there are a shed load of initiatives coming through at the moment. I mean, the, the feeling in Parliament is that we're kind of running around like mad, demented ferrets. Um, But that does give a real opportunity for advocacy. I mean, if you think about it, it's not just the green recovery plans and the carbon targets, but there's things like nature recovery networks, 
the Climate for Nature Fund, the Environment Bill, the, the huge reform of land use in the in the agricultural reform area. Uh, and so there are lots of buses passing and getting on one or two of them is going to be quite possible. Um, but it does make for huge amounts of activity and people have really got to be pretty focused, I think, to decide where they can have influence and, and then do that in depth. I think one of the things that's a problem when there's a lot of opportunity is you can't can get into scattergun approach if you're not careful. Let's drop into our big interview for this week, I think, in that case then, and think a bit more about advocacy. I was really keen to talk to Jake and Al about this topic, in particular after hearing Jake speak about the importance of embracing politics rather than seeing it in a perhaps more negative light um, and hearing a little of his experience working on some US election campaigns. Al spent his career advocating for the environment and working really closely with the government. And so we caught up a few days ago over Zoom. And I started off by asking Jake about why advocacy is even necessary in the water and environment sector. I think in the water sector, as much if not more than almost every other sector out there, if you don't do at least good advocacy work, um, you're a bit like a ship's captain complaining about the sea around you. I mean, it's there and it's in the condition it's in. And I think particularly in the water industry where it's so heavily regulated, where we have a uh, social licence to operate, um, that we really, really engage heavily with um, uh, democratic bodies um, with, um, and with government, with government officials and with regulators on a really regular basis. Al, can I bring you in? I'd, I'd love to know. So from your perspective, obviously, SOAM is an independent body. So um, give me a sense of, I guess, in your role as director of policy, where advocacy fits into all of that. I mean, obviously, SOAM is a, an environmental organisation and water is a, you know, a really integral component of that environment. And it, it's kind of like the canary in the coal mine often for, for environmental health. But I think advocacy and campaigning and, and political engagement is, is kind of synonymous with that group. You know, it, it's got its roots in, in the tragedy of the commons, hasn't it? It's because the environment offers us so many free, effectively free services. It's those, um, or, or cheap, it's those resources that are really readily available and help us um, build all the products that we consume, absorb the pollution that that production um, creates. And those processes, which are absolutely central they're fundamentally undervalued or not even valued at all by the kind of prevailing economic systems that um, our whole societies are built on. If they're not even being factored into that equation, you've got to get them onto the radar. So you're really reliant on very compelling evidence to say that, well, yeah, this isn't, the system doesn't recognise this as being beneficial, but we're really telling you it's important. Well, it's so interesting. Something you said really resonated with me is around the value, actually, and how do we give value to the services that we are afforded, in essence, by the environment? That's really powerful. It's definitely something I've been thinking about recently is how do we help people value those things? I wonder if I can bring you in, Jake, in that case, because I'm really keen to, I mean, Al's raised some interesting points. How, How well are we doing as a sector? I think as an environmental sector, um, you know, some of the best advocacy work out there that's ever been done, really, has been done in the in the environmental sector, I think. You look back at some of the big EU directives, Water Framework Directive, Habitats Directive, etc., etc. Um, uh, Climate Change Act in 2008, um, Montreal Protocol. Fantastic bits of advocacy led to those, and there were really big sea changes. And sometimes you can read back through that legislation and think, how on earth did they get that to pass? Having said that, on the water side of things, and, and OK... Um, you know, there's the Water Framework Directive, but equally, I think we're really not particularly good at it. 
one of the key factors in that is, is that understanding really, really clearly what your objectives are and who your audience is and what who influences that audience is key in any form of communication, but it's particularly key in advocacy work because the systems by which people make decisions are so complex in government. You know, it's why out from the outside it just looks like a sort of faceless bureaucracy or mass if you don't really listen and listen really actively and deeply you're not going to get anywhere and, and they can remain nameless but but a former a former minister well who is a current minister in in a different different role once said to me that they thought that the sector was tone deaf and um in terms of the water sector and if i'm honest it really struck a chord with me um, and you see a lot of these issues that are coming to the fore now where you think we have been engaging with them for a long, long time, but have we been really, really listening? It's really interesting to hear the, the, the perception. I think there's a real um, risk with any sector that you become a bit of an echo chamber and you only talk to yourselves. And certainly, you know, I spent my career in the water sector and we have our own language and things like regulatory frameworks only serve to exacerbate that, actually, because, it, you know, we've got a special way of doing things. Um, Al, from your perspective, obviously, um, Jake's just said that you've done a dreadful job over the course of your career because we're dreadful at uh, advocacy work. <laughs> I've got a wry smile. Um, let's talk about where we could have done better, maybe. I'm really keen to hear some good examples and what we think those magic ingredients are. But maybe let's start with uh, where have we where have we missed some opportunities? Where could we have gone faster? What could we have done better? I mean, that is really that's a really hard one to answer because, to be <laughs> honest, if I knew the answer to it, I probably would have done it. <laughs> done it differently but I think just I mean just picking up on um, what Jake said and, and knowing your audiences and, and having access to the right people to um, be able to to make some of the arguments stick you know um, we can be very very familiar with a certain government department and be very aligned with what that government department might think and might want to achieve and, and the obvious case in point in, in the kind of UK or English example are DEFRA and that's not the ultimate audience that you're having to convince. DEFRA then has to go and convince the rest of government, Treasury. And that can be the point at which um, things really you know, get, get cut down. And look at climate change uh, and the direction of travel that scientists have been saying we should be going in for, for a long, long time. The perennial criticism is that that science community has not been good enough. Oh, if only that we could get these messages across much more effectively, much more compellingly. It's not all about hair shirt experience. You know, you're not going to have to give up everything. There are some positive outcomes associated with this as well. We can build a greener, more, um, you know, resilient future out of all of this where we might all be happier um, and, and more prosperous. Did you just say hair shirt just so I can be really clear? Yeah, have you never worn one? What? What? I mean, it's saying a lot more about your fashion choices than it is mine. Well, it's lockdown, Nikki, you know. Amazing. I might get myself one of those. I didn't realise that was an option. That's, uh, I'm, I'm banging on about storytelling, but um, yeah, hair shirts, hair shirts are obviously not a good, good story. Uh, no. We need to get a lot better at linking the evidence with the narrative, I think. And, and I think we are getting better. Yeah, interesting. Stories are, like, I'm definitely reflecting on that a lot at the moment actually stories is what makes the world go around is what it feels like actually right from when we're children they're really powerful I, I've wondered Jake whether I can almost pass the baton over to you in terms of picking that that up as a thread any examples that you could share of where advocacy has worked and maybe try and unpick a little bit for me 
why you think that might be what some of the what some of the magic ingredients are from some of that yeah for sure for sure and and just to defend you know listeners won't be able to see Al's fashion choices but he's looking very good not a hair shirt actually in sight but um yeah, I think I think it's a really powerful point. You know, storytelling is absolutely what makes the world go round, and I think there's there's an element of just really um, taking that step back and simplifying what we're talking about. I always laugh. I have a colleague, uh, at least one doctorate in hydrogeology, um, you know, knows everything there is to know, and he shows me and voluntary communities these charts, and they've got eight different lines on them all with different kind of wavelengths on the on the on these chart patterns and he says what this clearly shows and I'm always sitting at the back of the audience thinking what what I'm thinking about is actually do you remember the Viennese slices those little desserts with the little wiggly lines in them and I think that's all it's reminding me of because it's nine o'clock and it's a Tuesday night in a village hall and I'm really hungry and I've got a horrible feeling everyone else is sitting there thinking that and going I have no idea what's happening I always say it's not about getting more scientists per se into say parliament or congress it's about getting everybody to think in a scientific way I think the other key point in this is that of course, you're not telling these stories in a really static space, in a vacuum. Other people are telling other stories about it, which is what really, really obviously held back the climate scientists from telling their story in their way. And that's about really picking the bits that are resonant to people and key voters now. What the traditional um, sort of oil lobby has done, particularly in the States, is really, it's, it's all about jobs, right? I mean, you, could, you can see that, you could see that in the last presidential election, where in, in Virginia, in coal mining communities, people were right behind Trump. Even if they'd already lost their job because their coal mine had shut down, because it frankly wasn't economically viable anymore. And saying, well, it's not going to benefit me, but I want someone to champion me and my values, and that's where the story bit comes into kind of values. And this is the irony, because I look at the water sector and the environmental sector and think, these are people with values that are second to none. I mean, I've never, I've never met people in, the, uh, in an industry that so uniformly is met by people who are really driven by public purpose, by environment, environmental concern. And yet, does the rest of the world know that? I don't think it knows it at all, really. We're really grateful to our sponsor, Yorkshire Water, for making it possible to bring you this podcast series. If your organisation would like to find out more about sponsoring future episodes or series of Let's Talk WEM, just go to letstalkwem.siwem.org to get all the information you need. A colleague of mine mentioned the other day that I was thinking about is whether COVID actually gives us an opportunity in terms of, and I don't mean that to be crass taking obviously into account the awful circumstances presented for many people but I suppose the opportunity around scientific literacy you know you'll have people talking about an R number I don't know it's just something I was kind of mulling over I don't know what you think really about that guys whether it's an opportunity or not I think it's really important that in advocacy work you you're nimble and you're able to um, mobilize around issues and and be make the most of opportunities um, that occur so obviously COVID isn't the kind of opportunity that anyone would want to have occurred, but it's definitely given oxygen to that whole green recovery agenda, um, to the the health and wellbeing benefits of being able to get outside in the natural environment. And I think, yeah, there's two strands. The the look at the pace at which vaccines have been developed. Mm. I mean, that is absolute testament to scientific ingenuity and the way in which science can mobilize around a really really urgent need and it's a case of really trying to harness those those kind of narratives 
for other beneficial causes as well. What we're seeing now is is people are very, very good at um, very quickly mobilising coalitions of support at a certain point in time when it's going to be high up a political agenda. It may get the debating time in Parliament. And if you can really demonstrate that weight of support um, by a large community and a large constituency, then you've, you can really make the most of those opportunities. I think that's absolutely right. And I, and I think that sort of sees the day um, piece is really, really key. And I, and I think I think there's a really important window of opportunity here. I mean, most environmental regulation in the UK was driven by EU regulation up until this point. And, you know, put put, put aside feelings about Brexit, I'm not going to go there um, but, but uh, for obvious reasons. But what this does do is it means that future environmental regulation is going to be debated at length in Parliament. And I think there's a real job for journalists in particular to get their head around that. I think uh, it, it's too easy that these things get lost. Um, or they're seen just as purely as technical or technocratic issues. And actually they're not. They're really fundamental to the way we all live. I see that as a really good thing. I think there's a real opportunity and a real window of opportunity, particularly for organisations at the sort of front of that, like Cywin. If we think about the kind of what next then, so the people that might be listening to this may be working with organisations or within organisations that might be advocating or could be Cywin members. I suppose it's, um, what's what's the way forward for us? I mean, from a, a Cywin perspective, I think I'd... I can't do this pod without selling um, the the positive traits of, of Cywim. And I think, you know, we've got some massive, massive environmental NGOs globally and, and nationally, and they're incredibly good through their activities at getting the media limelight through direct action. But I think the, the niche that Cywim, organisations that Cywim offer is we've got these thousands of members who are practitioners who go out and do solutions on the ground day in, day out. They know what's working. They can call out some of the perceived wisdoms that maybe aren't true. Um, and if we can bring that practical experience base as well as the kind of academic evidence, together with that really eye-catching, um, really cute messaging that the NGOs do so, so well, it can be really, really powerful. And I think just bringing those whole communities, building the biggest coalitions we can with the most diverse experience bases um, is how you get that thrust and that cut through and do that storytelling in the most compelling way. That's really interesting. Thank you, Al. And Jake, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I really wholeheartedly endorse that. I think, I think working with other organisations, working a bit with the tide as well, is really, really key on all of this. And, 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 and frankly, I think this is something where we've got a huge opportunity. And then, and then I think also just a bit of a plea for for everybody to to think about what politics really is. It's a dirty. It's almost become a dirty word. So, um, you know, I, I I certainly know when I talk to colleagues. And I say, yeah, but the political thinking about this is this, and it's completely different. It might seem completely removed from it. Politics exists, and it's really, really important. It's it's for good or ill how we decide where to spend money, what our priorities are, how we should live. It's why we have elections. And I think the first step of that is to be aware of it and to think, I wonder what the political lens on this issue is. But I'd also just reiterate, exactly what Alistair just said, completely right. If we can build bigger coalitions and better and more effective coalitions around these things, we can just look at what's happened in air quality in the last few years as people have come up with a really resonant message. I, I actually did a survey when I first joined Affinity Water about 20 months ago and I got everyone to put their hands up and said, who, who played football with their dads when they were younger in the front garden kind of thing? Who kicked the ball around? And loads of people 
mainly men, but not exclusively men, put their hands up, hands shot up, and you could see on their faces, like, everybody remembering it, and such a powerful emotion, and then saying, and so, how many of you would do that now, with your own kids, if you thought that it would damage their lungs? And of course, all the hands shoot down. And, and you can tell what people are thinking. They're not thinking about the science of air quality in their kids' lungs. They're thinking... I'm not going to get to enjoy that opportunity with my own kids. And that's how you connect emotionally with people. And that's what the air quality quality campaigning has been doing a really impressive job of. Of course, what it's also done is the really detailed work that that Alistair was alluding to that that really good organisations like Simon do as well, which can't be ignored. That evidence base still needs to be there, but both things need to be there in tandem. Pulling both together is fascinating. The theme of of, um, my presidential year is everything is connected. And um, I want to test that out a little bit with you, if if you can humour me for a moment or two. Um, So the next pod that we're recording is with Doncaster County Council and the Environment Agency. And we're going to be talking about flooding. And we're going to be talking about the 2019 severe winter flooding that happened um, here in Yorkshire and exploring how local authorities and regulators worked together during an incident but then actually have worked together following that incident and then we're going to be chewing that over with um, uh, Liam Foster who's guest presenting with me and Liam works in um, Christchurch in New Zealand and actually as we were chatting the other day there are big floods in Napier happening at the moment so um, that's where we're going next that's the next conversation and I guess I'm wondering is everything connected and is there a link from the conversations that we've just been having about advocacy work into um, conversations about flooding? I mean absolutely Uh, and I I think everything Everything is very, very connected. And I think um, what is the change in US policy going to mean for world policy, global policy, really, on on climate change? And in particular, it looks like President-elect Biden's administration is going to be doing a lot of work, for example, on water and looking at making water climate resilient in the US. And the link between that then into the COP26 in Glasgow coming up and then, and then back to flooding, sea level rise and coastal change and coastal erosion. I mean, it, it seems a long way from Doncaster to the White House. But actually, those links are incredibly strong. Al? I think it's really interesting over the last decade or so how the public perception around, of, of solutions around flooding has probably changed and how that has connected into wider um, benefits. So back in, what, 2013-14 when there was widespread flooding all over um, and, and particularly around the Somerset levels, everyone was, uh, there was this huge kind of public and media outcry to, to dredge all the rivers because that's a solution. And, and that was where we did uh, a good bit of work, um, really trying to myth bust that. And we set out this, this case, worked again with the NGO community saying, no, you need a whole catchment approach too. And then last winter, when there was all the flooding, you, you hear the, the kind of interviews, the vox pops that are, are on the TV um, around solutions. And yeah, sure, people want um, higher flood defences, but they're also, also calling for more tree planting and upper catchments. Uh, slowing the flow has become part of the language that the public actually understand. Well, certainly in those kind of communities that are at flood risk, they understand it, they want it. These connections into the wider thing, I think that is becoming much more kind of common parlance at the moment. And, and that's great to see. Thanks, Al. Slow the flow actually is a really good example, I think, isn't it, of something that's hydrological concept, but actually 
has become something that people just get. Thank you so much. Thank you for humouring me as well. I'm going to shoehorn this theme into absolutely everything I do, whether people like it or not. So there we are. Shoehorn one complete. So thank you, chaps. And um, and well, just for me to say, what a joyful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned all sorts. I feel like I'm going to go and Google hair shirts probably now, if I'm perfectly honest with you. I tell you what, I cannot wait to get this blooming thing off. It looks a bit itchy. <laughs> okay, so... Barbara, what did you think listening to the interview? What are your immediate reflections from Jake and Al's thoughts? I thought one of the things that came out pretty clearly was the f- a sort of undercurrent of feeling that the water and environment area advocacy is a bit tentative there in some cases. But the thing that I think I've learned in my zillion years of advocating <laughs> is that if you act as if you've got a right of access to the people you need to influence, somehow they kind of open the door. Um, it's it's rare for it to be slammed in your face, but you've got to find the right people at the right time. So that was one of the, the big lessons that, that came over for me. But the other one was the, the one that you've already outlined, the power of storytelling, because mm-hmm. I, you've got to find that delicate blend of evidence and emotion. You can't just have one without the other. I, I remember one occasion when I was going in to see a minister about kids with long-term conditions not being properly looked after in schools and it was only when he started to cry because I had two very heart-rending case studies in the flesh with me that I realised I'd won. I'd been giving him lots and lots of evidence and facts mm. and figures for months but two kids telling heart-rending stories were the thing that did it and they changed the law the following day which was wow. brilliant. It's getting that right blend of setting the foundations of evidence and then bringing in the emotional connection so that people really feel that it's something that they can do something about when Al talked about the kind of climate science argument that really resonated for me exactly around that point the all the evidence is there but it's got to connect with with individuals hasn't it and then you've just said something really interesting as well I think around them being able to feel like they can do something about it that's a it's a heady combination I think isn't it when you get all that together so I'm really interested as you'd imagine in your experience you've you've had a, a wealth of experiences we've touched on briefly around advocacy across your career so from your perspective what are some of those magic ingredients for great advocacy and and have you got any examples of where that's you've seen that work well you've just touched on one briefly but but more broadly are there any within this sector I think you need to understand who's advocating for what. So often in advocacy, there's one set of folk on one side and one set of folk on the other. And if you don't understand what the other side are thinking and try to find ways in which you can sign up allies and neutralise the opposition, that's really an important part of it. But the second thing is finding who the guy is with a pen that's going to write the policy paper or or write the decision makers think piece or whatever, because it's often more junior people in government departments, in agencies, in regulators, who are the ones who are crafting the ideas. And if you can find that guy and help him write his paper, that Mm. can be a huge uh, way in that would not quite work if you were only going in at the top of that organisation. So finding the right people and getting to know them well and helping them in times of peace so that when times of war come, You've, you've got an ally at court and they understand where you're coming from and you've done them some favours and it's time for them to do you some favours. That sounds corrupt, but it's um, it's the way it's not corrupt, it's the way the world works. The comments in the interview was that, about the water industry being tone deaf. It, I mean, I don't think the water industry is tone deaf, to be honest, but uh, I do think that we all fall into the trap of talking to ourselves or talking to each other rather than thinking about who is it I need to influence, what sorts of things will influence them. Mm. And how can I get at them in number in a number of ways? And how can I get other people to get at them 
that don't so it's not just me banging on about it it's it's other interest groups who would also be prepared to help yeah and do you think the sector and when I say the sector I mean really broadly kind of water and environment do you think we do that well as a sector from your experience I think it's um there's always been a real crossover between the the kind of pure water activities of the water companies particularly and their environmental delivery and that's got stronger and stronger over the years as more and more frameworks have come into place um, I think that I think our big failure collectively was when I was at the Environment Agency. You know, we had the Water Framework Directive and River Basin Management Plans, which I had this wonderful idea we could make into the alternative planning system in this country um, by providing a system that actually dealt with the rural areas as well as the urban and development areas. But somehow, somewhere along the line, we we didn't quite get that vision shared, and the whole wretched thing fell apart under its own weight, which is a real when I go to my grave, the Water Framework Directive will be engraved on my heart. Oh, Barbara. <laughs> well, I certainly feel an emotional connection to that. If you're trying to advocate for me to do something, <laughs> then I'll do it. But, but that's why well, it's really refreshing to hear the things that don't work as well, actually, because that's the only way that we get better, isn't it, by, by looking at what does work, but also what didn't. So maybe that takes us nicely, I guess, on to understand what your kind of messages are to the sector around great advocacy so you know you're a peer in the house of lords you're chair of the woodland trust our audience will be people who work across our sector and the aim of this pod is to really share the lessons learned and some best practice and and learn from experience what would you like your messages to be it's really important that people think about who it is they're trying to influence and try to put advocacy in into the terms that they will see as important you know with government Linking everything to the economy is really important. Linking it to what voters are going to say is really important. And that's much easier these days because, of course, the green recovery arguments have all been laid out. The climate change arguments are really close to voters' hearts and that's carrying on all the way through COVID and even enhanced. So there's there's fertile ground out there. But I always used to say there's three rules of advocacy. The the first one is Woody Allen's uh, statement, 95% of success is turning up. Quite a lot of the time, you've just got to be in the right place at the right time. You've got to engineer these opportunities. The mm. second one is don't try to do anything between the flash and the bang. Um, the reality is you've got to start early. You've got to get the evidence. You've got to make the contacts. You've got to work the ground so that when you really mm. come for a, a big push on something, uh, people know who you are. You, they know that you're trustworthy, that you're reliable, you're evidence-based, and they know that they can work with you. And the third one is knowing what you want and asking for it. The number of times I've been lobbied by people who are wringing their hands over a particular issue. And then when you say, well, what do you want me to do? They go Mm. and don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So being very, very clear, keeping it simple, keeping it relevant and keeping it emotional um, at the end of the day. But above all, it's got to be evidence based. If If anybody ever gets you fiddling the books, fiddling the numbers, you will have lost their trust. And for me, that's where the power of organisations like SIOM are really strong, that that view of being really evidence-led. And whilst I appreciate I'm talking to a peer, being quite apolitical as an organisation and making sure that we just follow the, follow the science um, is really important, isn't it? And you've yeah. got a huge wealth with all of the practitioners who are in SIOM because they know stuff that other people don't know. Mm. And finding ways to get that stuff presented in a factual but charismatic way is just pure gold.
and I should mention, actually, as a conflict of interest, Barbara is an honorary fellow of SIWEN, which is wonderful. So we are delighted that you are within our ranks, really. Barbara, that's fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, time has flown by, and I think we're probably at the end of our first episode of Let's Talk When. But before we go, there is a little thing that I am hoping to, you know, engineer into every episode, really. As I mentioned before, the theme of my presidency is everything is connected. I thought we'd see if we could try and find a path between this episode around advocacy and my next episode, sort of six degrees of separation style. So Barbara, my next topic is flooding. I'll be speaking to Doncaster Council and the Environment Agency about how they work together um, during and post the winter floods in 2019. So any links? Well, certainly there was a link in the actual interview and uh, the podcast discussion because I, um, I used to be burnt in effigy on the Somerset levels for having created flooding and now of course reflooding the Somerset levels is regarded as a jolly fine thing in terms of stemming the flow and creating biodiversity but my abiding memory will be when I was at the Environment Agency uh, in a rowing boat with with Ed Miliband going across the floods to one of his stranded communities uh, in Doncaster so there how's that for a link? I couldn't have asked for better, really, could I? <laughs> thank you so much, Barbara. And thank you uh, to you for listening to our first episode of, of Let's Talk Wem. I hope you've really enjoyed it. I hope you've taken a few learning points away. I certainly have. Join us for our next episode out in January, where I'll be interviewing Oliver Harmer, the Regional Director of the Environment Agency, and Damien Allen, who's the Chief Executive of Doncaster Council. And my guest co-host then, joining me from Aotearoa, New Zealand, is Liam Foster. Finally, a ginormous thank you to Barbara, Baroness Young of Old Schoon, for being my first ever guest co-host. How was it for you? It was wonderful. I learned a lot as well. <laughs> Thanks so much, Barbara. Thanks, everybody. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Let's Talk Wem is produced by Bulb. B-W-L-B-Bulb. The best ideas, the strongest content.